Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 215. My name is Arlben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for maintaining our focus during this Passover season as we look to you, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Yeshua, you are the one who is the focal point of these festivals, the ones that we are participating in right now. We've made our way through Passover and Unleavened Bread and the Omri Sheep, First Sheep, or First Fruits, as some people call it. And now, uh, even by most counts, we're working our way through the counting of the Omer, and we've got a view towards Shavuot, or Pentecost, which is right around the corner of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So, um, thank you, Yeshua, for coming and uh, pouring out your lifeblood for us and providing the atonement that we ourselves could not provide. So, you are the you are the one that reconciles us back to the Father, so we celebrate you during this time. Bless us during this uh, end-time study and the... Um, uh, Trinitarian study that's to follow. Uh, help us to have ears to hear. Help us to uh, retain the things that we're learning and give us a, a heart to do your will, to put into practice the things that we're learning so that our feet have faith. And we'll continue to praise you and bless you for that. Um, be with us now and um, bless those who wanted to make it but couldn't make it. Um, I pray that you'll um, uh, just keep them safe and bless them where they're at. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, but shame Yeshua, Omein. All right, everyone, uh, we're jumping back into our live internet studies with the topic in front of us, which is the eschatology of biblical study of end time events. And we're still in topic five, which is the book of Daniel and the 70 weeks of Daniel. And my goal tonight, in this first hour long, is to actually finish the kind of the, the, the overview of Daniel 9, 24, 25, 26, and 27, all four verses there. And then to even maybe begin zeroing in on the final 70th week um, within the set of the of, of, of the time frame that Daniel recorded for us. Uh, but we have to kind of work our way through those other verses first. So we've already looked basically using um, David Guzik's, Pastor Guzik's notes. We've already looked at verse 24 and 25. And now we're ready to start looking at 26. Let me just kind of uh, show you the, the passages and read them all for you. Here's verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25. So you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Verse 26, which is the one we're going to start looking at tonight. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood even to the end. There will be war, desolations are determined. And then if we can get to it, we can finish verse 26 and 27 and start looking at 27 more intently. Um, it reads, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. This is what we call the 70th week of Daniel, or the final seven period. Right? Remember the word week there is just the word Shavuah, the root word Shavuah in the Hebrew. I'll just show it to you real quick. It is right there. Oops, didn't mean to do that. Um, let's try that one more time. That word right there, Shavua, which 
is a heptad. It's just a generic word for seven. Without context, you wouldn't know what amount of sevens it's, it's talking about. But since within Daniel, we've determined that we're talking about weeks of years or heptads of years, then it's a seven year, not a seven day or a seven month or even a seven um, something else, right? It's uh, the context really demands that we're talking about. I say demands because when when we're looking at the events as a whole and what time period it would take to transpire and get all of these events to happen, then we must be dealing with a seven-year time period. Plus, something else that good uh, friend of mine and I were discussing before the class started is that within this seven-year period, and we're going to see this when we get to it, within this seven, this heptad, the reason we know it must be years is because elsewhere, and not just in the book of Daniel, but elsewhere in the Bible, we have the midpoint week that Daniel's talking about here where it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one heptad, one seven. But in the middle of the heptad or the middle of the seven, right? Same Hebrew word. In the middle of this week, which we know to be a week of years. Why? Because the midpoint which would neatly divide the seven into three and a half and three and a half that time frame is spoken of elsewhere in the bible three and a half years 42 months 1260 days and so thus we know using the normal using language in its most normative sense of years months and days we know that this must be a seven-year time frame that we're talking about so verse 27 he'll make this firm covenant with the many for one week but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate and that's the end of daniel's prophecy and as i mentioned my goal is to finish 26 and start looking at 27 tonight. I don't think we'll finish 27 tonight because there's so much there that I don't want to rush it. Even though this isn't a deep dive into the book of Daniel, the details that are here aren't given other, there are some details that are found just in these short four verses that aren't found in other places in the Bible. For instance, the word 70 weeks and things like that. And so it's worth stopping and going slow enough to make sure that we're grasping how this is going to impact our look at the book of revelation which is what we're really working towards okay so those are the views the uh, verses in view daniel 9 25 is going to be uh, looked at in a few different versions here in fact um if i show you on the screen now uh some of the different versions let me shrink that just a little bit there we go uh we got the niv uh, verse 25 here. I'm sorry. We don't want verse 25. Why do I have that verse? Give me a second. We want verse 26. There we go. Had the wrong verse pulled up. So verse 26 here, NIV, after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. The only thing I want you to see is the very first few words in, in some of these different versions. Uh, the NLT after this period of 62 sets of seven English standard after the after the 62 weeks uh, by the way um, English ESV says after the 62 weeks an anointed one it doesn't say the Messiah it doesn't say the anointed one which is consistent with the Hebrew which doesn't have a definite article in front of the word for anointed one it's simply 
it's an arthris, meaning it's missing the article. So a tr an interpretation like the ESV or the Jewish publication versions that don't have it as saying the Messiah or the Christ, that's consistent with the Hebrew, which lacks the article. Although it's not wrong to say the, the Messiah, if that's your interpretive understanding of who the individual is that's going to be cut off and have nothing, which I believe is Messiah Yeshua. Berean Standard Bible, then after 62 weeks, notice I'm not reading the whole verse, I'm just showing you the first few words, because that's the part that, it's the time frames that get a lot of uh, mileage in the discussions of interpretations, well, my version is right, your version is wrong, the Jewish version is more accurate than the Christian version, the Joe's Witness version is more accurate than the Christian version, you know, depending on which interpretation you're looking at, uh, it's going to drive your perspective after three score and two weeks the good old-fashioned kjv there 62 weeks the new king james cleans it up nesb then after the 62 weeks nesb 95 62 weeks and nesb 97 62 weeks legacy standard 62 weeks uh, amplified bible 62 weeks christian standard 62 holman christian puts the number 62 in there doesn't write it out asv three score and two weeks reads like an old kjv so does the Aramaic Plain Bible. I'm sorry, 62 weeks there. Brenton Septuagint says, after the 62 weeks, the anointed one. We'll look at the Septuagint in time and see if the Greek actually is, uh, if the Greek allows for us to have the anointed as opposed to an anointed, because Greek has a definite article that shows up. Uh, in fact, maybe I'll do it later on tonight, but I don't, I don't want to do it right now. But just be aware that that's there. Contemporary English version at the end of the 62 weeks, Dewey Rames after 62 weeks, uh, ERV after the three score and two weeks, God's Word translation, but after the 62 sets of seven time periods, that's an interesting translation, Good News translation, and at the end of that time, <laughs> notice, God's Word translation, Good News translation, uh, more of a paraphrase, I understand, uh, rather than a dynamic equivalent like, say, King James version or something like that this is more paraphrastic so it's paraphrasing and notice they just they just smooth over or take out any time frame altogether and at the end of that time they don't even mention the numbers or that 62 weeks or you know how everyone's got their own particular way of saying well is this 62 sevens is it 62 years is it 62 years of sevens is it 483 years is it 490 years? Is it 462? You know, there's, there's a, there are different interpretations, and, and that's why I'm showing you. And we kind of focused on that last week, so that's why I'm alerting it, alerting it to your attention, bringing it to your attention, alerting it to, alerting you to it. Uh, International Standard, and then after the 62 weeks, JPS Tanakh, and after the three score in two weeks. A modern version, I think, doesn't use the that ancient archaic three-score language. But notice, after the three-score in two weeks, shall an anointed one be cut off. We already know that the JPS, which is short for Jewish Publication Society, we already know well, we Christians know well, that Judaism rejects Jesus as the candidate, as this anointed one who would be cut off at this particular time frame. Instead, they opt for someone like a king, an anointed king, either Agrippa, who lived in the first century, or Herod, or 
maybe even one of the, the Roman emperors would be considered an anointed one, a king, a ruler. They're just taking the word mas- anointed one here, the, the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is normally used in context of a king or a priest, someone who's anointed for a particular office. And they're simply saying, this is just some recognized leader. It doesn't have to be the Messiah. It's simply a leader, a Messiah, a messianic leader. In that sense, messianic being the generic form of the word for leader. That's what the way they're spinning that translation. Literal standard after the 62 periods of seven. Majority standard after the 62 weeks. Notice that most of the English-leaning Christian translations have the word Mashiach, the Hebrew word, which is translated as Messiah. They have it capitalized with a capital M. Why? Because their interpretive bias is that this must be Jesus. Thus, not only is it the word Messiah instead of an anointed one, but two other features. They'll usually have the article, the word the, even though it's not there in the Hebrew. And also they will put the Messiah, the word Messiah with a capital M, meaning for them, this is the the Christ, this is Jesus. New American Standard, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, so it reads almost like a, a reads more like a, a non, like a non-Christian version. The Net Bible, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one. Uh, New Revised Standard Version, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one. New Heart English Bible, never heard of some of these, right? After the 62 weeks, the Messiah. Webster's Bible translation, after 62 weeks, shall Messiah, with the capital M. World English Bible, 62 weeks, and the anointed one. Kind of a mashing up between the word anointed instead of Messiah, but it's with a capital A and a capital O, and it has the definite article, right? Young's literal, after the 62 weeks, after the 60 and two weeks, cut off is Messiah with a capital M. And there's additional translations that I don't really need to look at uh, at the moment. But I think you guys are getting the idea that Daniel 9.26, which we're going to be looking at tonight, has a variety of different translations. But something that seems to be rather almost universally agreed upon in all of the versions that we dread is that the 62 sevens transpires or, or goes by and then something happens to this Messiah figure that's cut off because they all begin with more or less after the 62 sevens, this anointed person is cut off. So that's where we get a lot of agreement. Wouldn't you, uh, did you take notice of that? We talked last week also about this idea of confirmation bias. Just wanted to remind you again of how this works. Confirmation bias in its negative form is the tendency to search for, interpret, and remember information that confirms our beliefs. And because of that, then we can have facts and evidence that our beliefs may blind us to. So using the two circles, you can see that on the far left, we have an arrow pointing to the part of facts and evidence that shows that we discredit and ignore certain facts. And yet at the same time, on the far right, the opposite, we have an arrow pointing to what we want to be true of our beliefs. And in that overlap section in the middle of this Venn diagram, right in the middle of that kind of almond slice, right there smack dab in the middle where the arrow is pointing down, what we look for and recall, when you talk with people about what do they understand about the Bible and they remember what they've heard in church or what they've heard in synagogue or what their favorite YouTuber talked about, and what they look for when when they're reading their own Bible themselves, it's that very small slice of the confirmation bias. And again, in the negative form, this can have the tendency to blind us to perhaps 
really what the true details are because we're only seeing what we want to see based on what we perceive is in agreement with what we already believe anyway. It's kind of kind of what we might call self-confirming, right? Oh yeah, I knew that was true because I already believed it to begin with. I knew that 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 was what was it was going to be that way because I already believed it something to that effect. And yet that is something that we want to make sure we're avoiding in the negative sense of the word when we're reading the Bible. It can give us a false sense of knowledge, right? Because we're not really seeing objectively what the Bible's saying. We're only seeing what we believe we want to say. And yet at the same time, when we're talking about prophecies that have been fulfilled or facts that have been revealed from the time period of the Tanakh carrying over into the New Testament, such as who is the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? Right, speaking of Israel and her blindness, then there's a biblical form of confirmation bias that I believe actually can work to our advantage, where we're allowing the older parts of Scripture to confirm earlier parts of what we might call partial information or limited information or even mystery. We know that the Bible is a progressive book, and God laid out information from beginning to end in progressive fashion. He didn't reveal everything all at once. And so as time unfolded in history, and as mankind received more and more revelation from God, some of it was veiled in mystery, some of it was partially revealed, but not all of it was revealed. The time period of the New Testament is the revealing of God's truth in its fullest sense, as is demonstrated in the coming of his son, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the establishment of his people, right, the body of Messiah, etc., etc. The mysteries are being unfolded before us, even though some of the mysteries are still mysterious, right? We only have as much information as God gives. But the point I'm trying to highlight in this confirmation bias recap is that we can now use biblical confirmation bias to say, well, there were Old Testament prophecies that we weren't quite certain about, but because the New Testament has now filled in the missing details, and now that we have fulfillment of some of these details, we can now look at history and say, the Bible now confirms what was only foretold in the Old Testament, in the time period of Tanakh, and we have a healthy version of confirmation bias. We already looked at how that the weeks are really years based on the context, not just by what must be taking place in the time frame, but also because of the standard Hebraic understanding of a week referring to a year and its relation to both the Shemitah sabbatical year, as well as that's relation to the larger Jubilee or Yovel year. So we looked at that in time, and we don't need to rehash that anymore. We're right now in the middle of looking at Daniel's 70th week, and tonight we're going to turn directly into looking at verse 26. Looking at this time chart, we've got the breakdown of the three separate periods that Daniel himself speaks of. The first period of the seven weeks, the 49 years, followed by the second period of the 432 years, or 62 weeks, which, using simple math, leaves us with the final one week or seven years. And I believe that that perspective, that context, drives the interpretation that most people arrive at when we say that there are three break, three periods that we're speaking of that are working together. Seven plus 62 plus seven. And when we say seven, I mean 49 plus 434 plus seven. That's what I mean by those time frames. Look at the math here. It must add up we can have discussions on whether or not there truly is a church age gap between the first two chunks of sevens and the final chunk. There are some differences of agreement there. Yes, I understand. And there are different ways to interpret 
who and when the decrees start, right? This particular graphic shows that it started at around 444. There are others who take an earlier date, 457, some who go even far or earlier than that. But most Christian organizations agree on either the 457 or the 444 date as the starting point. Judaism itself uh, has some allowance for that starting date. But we talked about how that this person who shows up after the seven weeks, this Messiah figure that shows up according to some translations, if he shows up after the seven weeks, the first 49 years, then it's much too early to be Jesus. And that's why Judaism takes that particular perspective. So let's begin to continue. Let's begin. Let's begin to uh, look at particularly verse 26 and work our way through Dr. Or, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if he's a doctor or not, but Pastor David Guzik. His commentary is available online at EnduringWord.com. Very, very highly recommended uh, Bible commentary. He takes the traditional kind of, oh, what, what am I going to say? The majority perspective on Daniel's 70 weeks here, which sounds very dispensational. I myself am not a dispensationalist, but when there are truths that a certain denominational group or a certain a perspective brings to the table that I agree with, then I just, I take that part of that discussion and I latch onto it, right? I'm fine with saying that uh, the way the dispensationalists describe much of the time frames seems to be accurate to me. So I'm going to go with this particular interpretation on many of these details. We have some minor disagreements, but I'll highlight those whenever I see them. So here's Pastor David Guzik. Point number four in the outline that we're working through. What happens after the first 69 weeks, which is really the zeroing in of the point of discussion for tonight? Let's read the verse again. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off right up front. His translation, whatever he's using, I can't remember, I think it's NASB as well. Right up front, he has the word Messiah with a capital M. And thus, from his perspective, this Messiah must be Jesus. Let me show you this in the Hebrew just real quick. Vachai ha shavuim, shishim, ushnaim. Right? Those are after the sixty-nine weeks and after the after the sixty-nine weeks itself. Yikaret Mashiach. Yikaret is the word, the verb for shall be cut off. And then the next word, let me just highlight it for you so you can see what I'm talking about. This word, Mashiach, is where we get our English word Messiah. And if you can read Hebrew, you'll notice that there is no article. It doesn't say Hamashiach shall be cut off, right? Yikaret Hamashiach. It literally says Messiah. So if your translation has the Messiah, that's one thing. Let me real quick, I didn't have this before, but I'm just curious. Let's bring in the Greek Septuagint and see what the Greek says. Bear with me. I should have had this pulled up earlier, but I didn't. 926. The Greek says, the Greek does not have, the Greek does not have a definite article in front of the word Messiah or the, the, the what word we would translate as anointed one, chrisma, which is right there. But it doesn't have ha chrisma or tas chrisma or some other form of a Greek 
article like we see elsewhere in this for in this verse there's a greek article there tain there's ta here there's toss up here uh, there's toe over here these are the greek articles the word the that we would translate there's toe right there you can see in my where i'm moving my mouse right now but in front of this word uh chrisma which is the word for anointed one there's no uh article in front of it so even though the translation below it in english has the anointed one over on the right side it simply says an anointed one that's a little more uh, close to what it literally says so all right so now we know again why if you hear someone arguing well this isn't jesus it doesn't say the messiah it says an anointed one it says a messiah right well we have to be fair now with the translation you're right it doesn't say the messiah as if it's the christ that we've been looking for but context drives what we're uh, our interpretation from a christian perspective as well as a jewish perspective so after the 62 weeks messiah doesn't say uh or the just leaves it out altogether but it's capitalized and that tips your hand into knowing that hey this these, this is a christian translation messiah shall be cut off but not for himself also capitalized the h there in himself and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined okay let's read guzik's translations or his uh his commentary point a after the 60 weeks messiah shall be cut off the biblical term cut off is sometimes used to describe execution right per genesis and exodus gabriel told daniel that the messiah will be cut off for the sake of others not for himself yes the word uh is the word the word karat is the root word is normally reserved for execution of people right being cut off or excommunicated from within the group sometimes god can say to an israelite if you do x amount of commandment breaking you'll be cut off from your people doesn't mean that you will die meaning you won't be executed you know in that fashion it's not a capital punishment pronouncement rather you are kicked out of the group you're excommunicated from the people group of israel you are kicked out of the town or the city or the land or etc etc depending on the context but it can and does refer to execution in other vert in other passages guzik notes in roman numeral i uh, quote from Ironside, able chronologists have shown that the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ occurred immediately after the expiration of 483 prophetic years of 360 days each from the time of Artaxerxes' order. Remember that time frame that I was showing you. Let's go back to that real quick. This one. Notice in this version, the second degree of art degree decree of artaxerxes was in the 444 time frame some charts say 445 so 444 45 somewhere around there others say that it was the earlier time frame so you notice this one says 445 others have like for instance brother alan parr here who's a christian youtuber he opts for the earlier date of 457 which is still an artaxerxes decree but it's an earlier one given to ezra rather than the later one that was given to nehemiah like we see in this chart so either way we're getting very close to allowing for a certain amount of time to pass by before jesus himself makes a prominent scene in the first century israel time frame which is what the uh, uh, highlight what's being highlighted by guzik here another quote by baldwin strangely many commentators simply ignore these numbers the numbers are symbolic not 
or arithmetic, arithmetical. And then Roman numeral number three, cut off his appointed description of Jesus' earthly life up to and including the cross. This is a quote from Heslop. Born in another man's stable, cradled in another man's manger, with nowhere to lay his head during his life on earth, and buried in another man's tomb after dying on a cursed cross. The Christ of God and the friend of the friendless was indeed cut off and had nothing. Remember, keep in mind that this passage about this anointed person being cut off in Christian circles is normally and rightfully associated with Yeshua, Jesus, the one who came in the first century and declared himself to be the Messiah after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Notice also before that, that he had kept himself hidden. He would heal people and tell them, hey, don't go around telling everyone who healed you. Don't say anything. He would charge people, don't say anything because he knew that his time was not yet to reveal himself publicly. But at the time that it but at the recording of the time where he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, what we often call Palm Sunday, is the time frame when he finally revealed himself publicly. And we know that, of course, at his trial, when they asked him point blank, are you the Messiah, right, when the high priest questioned him, are you he, are you the one? Yeshua answered, yes, I'm the one. I'm the one that, I am the one that will come on the, the I'm the one that you will see coming on the, on the clouds, you know, the son of man. Etc. Etc. He he plugged himself right into those prophecies. So by that point in time, he was openly revealing and professing himself to be the Messiah. But up and but before that, he kept himself hidden. So this is why it seems to coincide with his arrival or triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is why Christians like that 444, 445, or 457 date, you know, give or take 12 years there. They like that date because it says after this time period, you know, when the Messiah shows up and then he will be cut off, this idea of him going to the cross and dying and being cut off is outside of the 400 and let me pull up that time frame again. It's outside of the 434 years and it's after the 490 years as well. So it's after the 483 years it's, itself, which is why the Christian translations say after the 62 weeks, right? Remember, if you look at that time period again, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. But the 62-week time period came after the seven weeks. So really what Daniel's trying to say is after the 483 years, then the Messiah will be cut off. You guys understanding what I'm saying? Even though Daniel's 9.26 says, after 62 weeks shall Messiah cut off. But the 62 already came after the 7. That's the point I'm trying to make. So let's just pull up the verse again. Then after the 62 weeks, right? But the 62 weeks came after the 7 weeks. So we're talking about after 434 years, including, uh, which, uh, in addition to the 49 years. So we'll have, we have both of those time frames. Let's see what else happens. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the one who comes later shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. After the Messiah was cut off, Jerusalem and her temple would be destroyed again by an overwhelming flood. I'm sorry, an overwhelming army with a flood. Most of all, Bible scholars and commentators agree that this was fulfilled in the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. This is where the details of Daniel's prophecy really jump off the page for the preterists because when we're talking about the destruction of the city and the sanctuary there's a time frame that must be the first century nearly every single author that i have consulted on this particular verse and this particular 
clause of this prophecy agree that this is the destruction of the city and the sanctuary in the 70 AD time frame. So even standard Jewish authorities agree that this is talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which everyone knows by modern time reckoning that this was the, the destruction that stopped any other temples from being rebuilt. So now we're looking at a destruction that for the last 2000 years has not been rectified. We're talking about a destroyed temple that never got rebuilt. So the destruction of the temple here is more or less almost a final destruction, which gives the preterists the perspective that they carry, which is that God is done with Israel up to this point, and now he's dealing with the church by and large, and that's why all of Daniel's prophecies must be interpreted within the first century time frame. 70 AD, and then the 130s with the destruction of Jerusalem itself and the plowing under and the kicking out of the Jews. After the Messiah was cut off, is it's important to notice that this time frame has parameters that include Messiah being cut off after the 62 weeks, and then we have this destruction of the sanctuary having taking place also after the 62 weeks. And that is important because it shows us that Daniel even though he didn't see what we might call this 2,000-year-long church gap. Let me bring up that chart for you one more time. See that gap there on my chart with the bright red arrow pointing up that says church age? Notice that it's labeled AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem. We got the big cross there where it shows Messiah being cut off around 33 AD. The cutoff here refers to not just the fact that Messiah was executed by the Romans, but it cut off also in the sense that from a Jewish perspective, he was rejected by his people. He was sent into exile, as it were, from the Jewish people. He was rejected by the Jewish people, in that sense, cut off. His lineage came to an end, right? He didn't have any seed following after him, no children following after him, in that sense, cut off also. But Messiah was executed. But notice that the gap on this chart takes place after the 483 years, but before the final seven years. So if Daniel says in his prophecy, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, then that phrase, the very first clause in Daniel's prophecy here, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. What this tells us is that these events that are being described in verse 26 are actually inside of the gap. Does that make sense? At least from the normative reading of the text. Because then in verse 27 it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So there's where the seven years begins its count again. But taking in its normative sense, we have this Messiah being cut off, the people of the prince destroying the city and the sanctuary, and the end coming with a flood and there'll be war, desolations, etc., History reveals that the events of verse 26 didn't transpire overnight. Even if you took Messiah being cut off, his death on the cross, being the end of the 62 weeks, or his death must be after the 62 weeks, right? Meaning the 62 weeks goes by, and then shortly after that, he's cut off, which is the, the, the interpretation that I'm going with. Nevertheless, we would have to agree that the events that we're reading about here, about the people, the prince who comes, the destruction of the city, the, the flood and all that stuff, all of that didn't take place in one night. It transpired over a, series, a period of 
months and years. And so most people would agree, even if the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the city itself wasn't destroyed completely or plowed under until up closer to the 130s, right, with the Bar Kokhba revolt and things like that. So what's the point I'm trying to bring up is that Daniel, probably without even realizing it, was actually describing events that we now know in hindsight, remember that confirmation bias, we now know in hindsight, historically occurred or transpired inside of the gap, inside of that church age gap. Now, the preterists are going to say, well, this was a very, very short gap. If, 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 if any gap at all, it was very, very short. But the preterists have to agree that there was some gap, at least, you know, the siege of Jerusalem with Titus and his armies, even that took place over a period of like six or eight months or something that affected. It wasn't instantaneous. It was drawn out itself. So even the preterists would have to say, well, there's some, there's still a little bit of gap, but how big do we make the gap? That's the point I'm trying to highlight. So let's go back over to David Guzik. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. After the Messiah was cut off, Jerusalem and her temple would be destroyed again by an overwhelming army with a flood. Most all Bible scholars and commentators agreed that this was fulfilled in the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. This is also rather striking because from Daniel's perspective, who was living right still in the exile period of Babylon, Daniel was foretold that Jerusalem would be built and that the temple would be rebuilt. But now Daniel's also being foretold that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. And yet, when we get to verse 27, which I hope to get to tonight, we're going to see that there must be some temple that's rebuilt again, because notice what it said in verse 27. He'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolation. Well, this is temple language, sacrifice and grain offering, and the wing of abomination, wing there, the, the extremity of the temple, etc., etc. Well, if the temple just got destroyed in verse 26, what's all this temple language in 27? So Daniel, I believe, is being foretold the rebuilding of another temple, right? At least if we take the language of 26 and 27 in its most natural sense. All right, let's go back up to verse 26. So, David Guzik talks about the destruction of the temple and Romans, the Roman authorities being the ones who execute or who brought that into reality. Notice point number C, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy, right? The destroying army is made up of the people of the prince who is to come. This coming prince is described more in Daniel 9.27. What we're also going to be seeing as we when we finally turn to verse 27 and the 70th week of Daniel eventually turn into it more pointedly is we're going to have to start dealing with who is this prince or who is this person who confirms a covenant is it jesus who confirms his covenant with the many is it the the antichrist right antigas epiphanies that we've heard about historically the one who showed up in the two centuries prior to jesus right during the time period of the maccabees and he defiled the temple and made a covenant with the people, is that the person? Or is it a future Antichrist that's still around the corner? We haven't seen him yet. He's going to make a covenant with the Jewish people and her neighbors for a seven-year time period. Is he going to be the one? 
And all of that is done within the context of who is the people of the prince who's to come. The Greek and the Hebrew use words that are similar to one another when we talk about prince in verse 26 and the he in verse 27, which is the immediate antecedent of the of the pronoun there. Who's the he? Is the he the people? Is it the prince? Is it the Messiah, the one? So those are some of the questions that we're going to have to start entertaining here. But first, as we finish up looking at verse 26, we see that the people of the prince who's to come shall destroy. According to Daniel, it's not this prince who destroyed the city or who destroyed the temple. Let me read the prophecy entirely. It says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary using historical events as our confirmation along with the Bible. We know that Titus, right? The son of Vespasian, the emperor. So that would make Titus a prince, by the way, since his father was an emperor. This makes, by way of title, that uh, Titus becomes a prince. So this fits also as well. The people of the prince who is to come, let's say this is Vespasian. I'm sorry, let's say this is Titus, son of Vespasian. So Titus, who is the prince who is to come, which I think is a very good possibility, strong possibility, and indeed it's the interpretation that I'm going to go with as a futurist. It says the people of the prince. Well, if Titus is a Roman then who are the, his people? His people would be the Roman soldiers or the Roman group, the legion that was underneath his command. And sure enough, history shows that Titus himself didn't want to destroy the temple. He tried to save it. You can read about this not just in your history books, but you can read about it in Josephus as well, who was a, a, a historian who lived at, at that time period. So Josephus also confirms that Titus didn't want to destroy the temple. He got, once he got in there and saw all of the beautiful gold and the structure itself, the ornate objects and stuff, the furniture, he said, let's keep all this, right? But because of what we might call mob mentality of the soldiers and the kind of the adrenaline rush of destruction that comes on when you're rushing a, an enemy, well, then they overwhelmed even his own orders not to destroy it and it just got destroyed by, not Titus, but by the people who were underneath his command, the soldiers and the whole crowd itself. And so, just like Yeshua prophesied that not one of these stones would be left unturned, and we'll get to those prophecies in time, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, the prophecies about the destruction of the temple, well, sure enough, history confirms that not counting the supporting wall that's left standing today, which is known as the Western Wall, but everything above that was raised to the ground by the people of the prince who came from Daniel's perspective, when we say future, the prince who's to come. So that's the fulfillment of that particular part of this prophecy. Notice it also says, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. That seems to be kind of an overview type of statement about the end of the city and the sanctuary with a flood. There actually was a flood, a physical flood, that took place during that time period. And then it says, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. We know that the, the events of 70 AD were events that not only Yeshua foretold would happen and that history, history confirms did happen, but from a futurist perspective we see that these prophecies could be repeated by a future rebuilt temple or at least some type of rebuilt sacrificing edifice like a, a sanctuary or a, at least an altar, a holy of holies type 
a object of furniture or room or something where sacrifices can be poured out. And then according to the future's perspective, we see that there's kind of a bit of a now and not yet or near and far aspect. Remember the prophetic telescoping image that I kept flashing on the screen from uh, from several weeks back? That Jerusalem's going to be destroyed again. And so we can see that perhaps parts of these prophecies can be recycled, as it were, be reused, where Jerusalem's going to be destroyed once again. We know from reading other Old Testament prophecies that there are that there's language about Jerusalem uh, suffering at the hands of Gentiles and things like that. Let's keep reading Pastor David Guzik. Let's now turn to verse 27 and begin to <clears throat> look at this final 70th week. What I'll do is I'll probably end out tonight by reading Pastor Guzik's commentary here, and the next week we'll actually have, have different material that's specifically dedicated to the 70th week. We'll have more charts that have a zoomed-in perspective of the events of the 70th week. We'll begin to look at the 70th week from the perspective of the three and a half and the three and a half years. And from a futurist perspective, what details should we expect to take place in the 70th week now that we've done kind of the overview? So tonight, we'll finish the overview of the 70 weeks to include the 70th, the final week. And then next week, we'll actually turn into the 70 weeks the 70th week, specifically just that last seven years, what Christians know as the seven-year tribulation, etc. Okay, so Pastor Guzik's point number five, which is verse 27, the events of the 70th week. Then he, here's his quote from the Bible, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come, shall be one who makes desolate, even unto the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Okay, let's begin to break it down. Point A, he shall confirm a covenant. According to Guzik's quote here, the he Gabriel described is the prince who is to come mentioned in the previous verse. If we know that the prince's people destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, then we know this coming prince has his ancestral roots in the soil of ancient Roman Empire, of the ancient Roman Empire. Now, let me interject. The interpretation that and comment that Pastor Guzik just supplied is a very well-known and well-accepted interpretation, and I think it has a little bit of merit as well, but I want to interject that there are other ways to view this. When we talk about he confirming a covenant, the immediate preceding nouns were either the prince or the messiah earlier or the people, right? We, we're not exactly sure. It could be any one of those. Daniel just abruptly starts verse 26 with, and he. And owing to the fact that the original writing of Daniel wasn't broken down into verses, well then from Daniel's perspective, who who's to say that originally verse 26 and 27 weren't in, originally intended to be one long verse, right? I mean, if, if they were one long verse, then the he would have been normally understood within the context of either this prince who is to come or the people or the Messiah that we talk, looked at in verse 25. Right, I'm sorry, earlier in, in uh, 26, he, uh, the Messiah who's cut off. So there are other possibilities when we're talking about who's the he that's confirmed the covenant. And based on that, different Bible interpreters of today come to the conclusion that this future leader, this prince to come or this Messiah to come, he will either have Roman ancestry or he will have Gentile ancestry. Some Bible teachers even 
say that he will have maybe Muslim ancestry, right? Looking for a Muslim type of Antichrist. That's an interesting perspective that I think like Joel Richardson takes that perspective. Either way we look at it, we're talking about an individual confirming a covenant. Who is the he and what's this covenant that he's confirming? Let's again begin to look at some of these details. We won't hit all of them tonight. I'm saving some of them until future for future studies. By the way, when it says the uh he'll have ancestral roots in the soil of ancient empire of the ancient roman empire given the historical reality that it was titus who destroyed the temple the people titus and his people who destroyed the first century temple and titus was definitely a roman then we can use that as our launching point to say that if and when there will be a revived Roman Empire, like Daniel seems to suggest from the prophecies that we found in chapter 2 and chapter 7 and now chapter 9, remember the beasts of chapter 7? Remember the statue of chapter 2? I'll put a little graphic on the screen to help you remind, remind you of that, and I'll bring it up again next week as we start going into the overview. Uh, remember... In those visions and those dreams, we saw that when it came time to describe the, either the fourth metal, which was the iron in the statue, and the fourth beast in Daniel's dream of chapter 7, that there was this odd sort of now and not yet or near, far, or partially fulfilled and completely fulfilled feature to that final empire or people group so when we're talking about a, an ancient roman empire that existed in the time of the first century as the beast empire that was on the scene then if it's a revived roman empire that shows up in the future then it would seem to make sense because it's simply a continuation of where daniel left off in his dream a continuation of where the statue left off with in the legs moving down into the toes so that's what we're talking about roman numeral point one, therefore, the prince who is to come will in some way be an heir to the Romans, even as the final world government is an heir to the Roman Empire. Again, knowing that Daniel prophesied events that dealt with world empires, Gentile people groups, and the and their influence over Israel and her people in that part of the Middle East, then we can say for certain that there have been other people groups gentile powers that have dominated israel at certain times and yet during the time of messiah during the first century it was rome who was in power so it makes sense for us to say to see that this antichrist who's to come from the future's perspective will in some way simply pick up where the first century world power left off right ancient roman empire revived roman empire etc etc that seems to make more sense however the world powers that are in in prominence today don't look very roman right we don't see people walking around wearing togas and that funny little hat that the roman soldiers wore with the fuzzy uh the one that Mar marvin the martian wears the little fuzzy uh mohawk on the top the red mohawk i'll flash a little picture and post so you can see what i'm talking about so when we're talking about a revived roman empire how Roman will it look? It might not look very Roman at all, but the footprint of where ancient Rome ruled, right, the borders, might be what Daniel's really getting at when he's talking about a revived Roman Empire, if indeed that's the interpretation. And so, given that possibility of interpretations, we would see some kind of 
landmass that is equivalent to what we might recognize today as the European Union or Europe or you know large parts of Europe. But if we're talking East and West Rome, right? Remember, Rome had East and West. Western Rome would be Europe, but Eastern Rome would be modern-day Turkey and those areas right now. So what are we to make of these prophecies? Well, as we're going to begin to get more details, again, when we turn to the 70th week and we start looking more at this Antichrist type of figure, this final ruler, we'll do this next week, I'll bring in some more maps and we'll talk more about how that given world empires today, we're seeing those who, are, who, who have influential power in and around Israel or near Israel, you know, Iraq and Iran and Lebanon, Turkey, of course, uh, and things like that. These these types of, of, of world powers. Today, we also have to deal with Islam. What do we make of that world dominance? What do we make of that world power? What do we make of how they're going to be fitting into the end time? So we can't just, the point I'm trying to bring up by all of this rambling, as it were, is that don't just dump everything on, say, Roman, on some revived Roman Empire. There doesn't seem to be enough, there doesn't seem to be, to, to, the details don't seem to flesh out an interpretation that would put everything in the lap of a revived Roman Empire. We have to take into account that much of the Middle East is dominated by what we today would recognize as Islamic powers. So that we, we have to bring them into discussion. Uh, right, I mean that that's that seems to be the obvious uh, interpretation that, or should say, the obvious detail that must be brought to the table if we're going to make sense of some of these end time prophecies. Let's keep reading this and finish this part out tonight. Pastor Guzik's point number B: He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Is this Christ confirming a new covenant with the people of Israel or with the many, meaning the body of Messiah, for one week? I've heard this interpretation put forth by some Bible teachers, and I think there might be even a kind of a spiritualized sense, an allowable, allegorical sense of the word, that Jesus did, as it were, confirm a covenant with his death on the cross. He definitely brought the new covenant into reality with his death. And yet, I don't believe, this is my own perspective, I don't believe that's what Daniel's talking about here. I believe what Daniel's talking about, the he... My understanding is that the he is this Antichrist figure of the future. He's not on the scene yet. And it was not the Antichrist who lived in the sense of Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a type in shadow, right? He's a shadow of the Antichrist. But I believe the he that Daniel's talking about here is the Antichrist of the future. And the covenant that he confirms with one week, I take it in its most literal sense, natural sense, that it's the seven-year, last seven years that Daniel already prophesied about in the set, and that that's the week, and the covenant is some sort of agreement that this leader, this world leader, this very, uh, what we can say, charismatic leader, he makes this covenant not just with Israel, but obviously must be made with Israel and her neighbors in some sort of peace agreement. Perhaps it's an agreement that's already on the books that he simply revives. Perhaps he drafts up a brand new one, something to that effect. The word confirm in the Hebrew doesn't mean that it has to be 
completely brand new. It can allow for something that's simply strengthened that was already there, but just but didn't have any legs to it, right? So we've got all any number of different piece of cords. If this is a future prophecy, we've got any number of piece of cords that are already drawn up on Israel's books between Israel and her surrounding neighbor, her immediate neighbors, right? The Palestinians and her the Arab people groups that are immediately her immediate neighbors. We've got all any number of peace accords that could be, if possible, brought to the table, given some sort of strengthening, right? Confirming, and then simply stamped into existence and brought it to life so it doesn't have to be something brand new is the point i'm trying to make i do believe this is a future facing prophecy the he is the antichrist and the confirming of a covenant is again something that is probably already on the books that he just simply pulls out of draft form and reworks it and 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 puts some confirmation to it and then implements it puts it into view into perspective puts it into practice and the many is the jewish people and her neighbors that's what i see this prophecy speaking of again some people say this could be the confirming of a covenant with jesus again if i allow that possibility or interpretation it's only on the spiritual sense because jesus confirming of the covenant with many for one week doesn't seem to fit the rest of the, what the prophecy talks about how he this same he destroys the temple and, and the people of this he well who's the people of he if it's jesus that's destroying the temple right that those are some odd details the coming prince will make a covenant with israel for the final unit of seven years completely completing the 70 weeks prophesied for the jewish people in jerusalem i take uh guzik's view here covenant with many the word many here is a specific reference to israel not a general reference to a group in other words if it if if the many here is literal and we're talking about a final seven years in the future the many that the covenant is made with is the jewish people and her surrounding people within within the perspective of her surrounding enemies or her surrounding neighbors right if there's a peace treaty made up drawn up with israel and it doesn't include the surrounding neighbors well then it, it it's going to fall apart so practical common sense dictates that it must include the surrounding neighbors of israel i mean that's what the peace treaty is for is some type of agreement so her neighbors are going to be at the table when this covenant is discussed that's there's just no way around it it's not going to be the antichrist in israel behind closed doors right it'll be the antichrist israel and her her whatever representative leaders of those surrounding people groups and it'll probably be very public it'll probably be i say probably i could be wrong but I mean, every other peace accord that has taken place between Israel and her neighbors, going all the way back to, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember when President Carter was brokering a peace treaty with Israel and her neighbors. Then we had, uh, we've had Netanyahu there. We've had Itzhak Rabin in the picture. We've had Arafat in the picture in the past. And then more recently, we've had Trump and netanyahu was it netanyahu i don't think it was so but it was trump and whoever the arab representatives were i'll flash a little picture on the screen so you guys can see what i'm talking about but the point being is was it in secret no right if a peace agreement's going to be brought to the table that's going to have any lasting effect at least for seven years or longer it might even the language might not even say seven years on the paper it might be longer but the antichrist knows in his mind and in his heart that it's going to be much shorter and indeed as we're going to find out next week he's going to cut that thing in half at the three and a half year mark and say that's it i can't put up with you guys anymore let's just start the 
the the, the, the doom and gloom program. Let's, let's let's start the death program. Let's fire up the death camps and just you know fry up everybody like the ancient other uh, Nazi type uh, Antichrist figures like Hitler did. Right? Let's just turn on the Jewish people and annihilate them. That's what Antichrist himself is going to do when he breaks his covenant in the middle of the week, which we're going to read about here in a moment. But the point I'm trying to bring up is, will this covenant be in secret? Probably not. I could be wrong. Could be behind closed doors and no one's going to see it, but it's very unlikely that Israel can do anything like with this lasting magnitude in secret. So the many here is probably with Israel and her neighbors. I don't take this to be the many, meaning all of the saved individuals that Jesus cut the new covenant with. This would seem to suggest some sort of replacement theology. I'm not sorry, not replacement theology, but a form of of limiting the scope of, of the covenant that Jesus cut to only existing with the many people in the from the New Testament point going forward. But we know that people have been saved before that, right? Abraham was saved, Moses was saved. So you know, did Jesus cut the covenant with them as well? We have to talk about those words. So let's see what Guzik has to say here. Roman numeral two, with this covenant, Israel will embrace the Antichrist as a political Messiah, if not the literal Messiah. Jesus predicted this in John 5.43 with this quote, I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Yeah, okay, that seems to fit. Point number three is we're drawing the study to a close tonight, taking the destruct uh, the description of what would be accomplished in the 70 weeks from Daniel 9.24. We know that the 70 weeks are not yet complete. Again, this is in contradistinction to the preterist perspective who says, nope, it is complete. The hyper-preterist, full-blown preterist, and even many of the partial preterists put a lot of these events in the year 70 AD, first century. But those of us who are futurists, like my, myself, which includes a good portion of Christianity, they all, though not all, right? A good chunk of Catholicism, Lutheranism, Greek Orthodoxy, and Presbyterianism, to, to name just a few, as well as, I believe, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they take the kind of amillennialist, uh, uh, kind of non-literal, preterist perspective where there isn't a literal kingdom that we're looking forward to and therefore none of these events really need to be locked into specific time periods and things like that but guzik says that we know that the 70 weeks are not yet complete according to the literal the more the more taking the verse in its normative historical grammatical perspective yet the events he says prophesied in the first 69 weeks are fulfilled indicating that there is a lengthy pause in the 70 weeks between the 69th week and the 70th week so just flashed a little chart that shows the graph of the gap that's what guzik is describing where i'm moving my mouse around in the middle there the gap there that's what he's talking about when he says between the 69 year 69 weeks and the 70th week guzik continues the 70th week will begin when the coming prince shall confirm a covenant with the jewish people these gaps or pauses in prophecy may seem strange to us but they are common comparing isaiah 9 6 and luke 1 31 through 33 shows another significant pause or gap in prophecy regarding the coming of the Messiah. So it's not unusual to have gaps in prophecy. Remember the prophetic telescoping, the two mountain peaks, one closer to the prophet, one farther away from the prophet. A gap is that valley between the two mountain peaks that the prophet may or may not be aware of because from his perspective, his what we might call his 
the optical illusion that's created by looking at two mountain peaks from that perspective, you don't know the distance between those mountain peaks. You don't know what that valley entails, how many years it entails. Guzik continues, Roman numeral point number four. We can, and we're drawing our study to a close tonight. We can think of it this way. God appointed 490 years of special focus on Israel in his redemptive plan. The years were paused by Israel's rejection of Jesus. Now, there is no special focus on Israel in God's redemptive plan because this is the time of the church, or the times of the Gentiles. I'm adding my own wording there. Guzik continues, God's focus will return to Israel when the church is taken away at the rapture, a point I disagree with, but let's let Guzik speak. And the last seven years of man's rule on this earth begin. So right away we can see Guzik is showing that he is a pre-tribber. He believes that the church will be removed from earth at the rapture, which takes place immediately prior to the seven-year tribulation. So let's see if this chart shows it that way. This chart doesn't show it that way, but this one does. This one has the rapture taking place immediately before the last seven years, that bright red square in the middle of your screen that says the tribulation, seven years. And notice there's a little arrow pointing up at the beginning of that square where it says rapture. That's what Guzik just described. Notice also that it doesn't show it on this chart, but I believe Brother Parr is also a pre-tribber. If I remember looking at a different chart of his, he shows the rapture as taking place right at the very beginning of what he calls the seven-year tribulation. I myself am not a pre-tribber. I'm a pre-rather. I believe that the rapture will take place a little after the midpoint, so about three-quarters of the way into the seven-year time period. Therefore, I don't call the seven-year time period the tribulation. I call it a seven-year time period, but as we're going to learn next week, I believe that there's a little bit more detail that we can see in other scriptures to help define that the tribulation doesn't start until after the midpoint of the week. But Guzik continues in, ver, in uh, point number uh, five, Roman numeral point number five. The 70th week will begin when the Jewish people are restored in unbelief to their land and city, and among them will be found a faithful remnant owing their, owning their sin and seeking Jehovah's face. That's according to Henry Ironside, writing in 1911. And then as we conclude, point C in Guzik's commentary, in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Notice, if this is Jesus, if he's the he that started this whole verse in verse 27, you know, he shall, let me pull up the passage again. And he will make a covenant, a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And the wing abominations will come one who makes desolate until a complete destruction. If the he is Jesus making a firm covenant with the many for one week, and Jesus is the one in the, also in the middle of the, of the week, he is putting a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And that, again, from the Christian perspective, seems to have some traction because most Christians are of the idea that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross brought an end to the animal sacrifices themselves. However, that's not how I interpret the verse myself as a Messianic Jew. I believe, again, that the he is referring to Antichrist, who's bringing this covenant to fruition with the Jewish people, not with the world in large in a salvific sense, but it's with the Jewish people in this peace, land for peace, agreement. That's the covenant that he's confirming with this people for seven years. And this same 
Antichrist, in the middle of the week, he'll bring it in to sacrifice an offering. This seems to accord with the other parts of Scripture that describe this midpoint of the week where this Antichrist figure reveals his true face, his ugly face. Israel, in sheer horror, realizes that they've made a covenant not with of peace, but a covenant with Sha'ol, a covenant of death, which is confirmed in other passages. And this person marches into the temple, defiles it, declares himself to be God, according to Paul. This is the person who abominates, desecrates the temple, according to Yeshua in Matthew. This is the person that puts an end to the sacrifices in the book of Revelation as well. And so this midpoint is spoken of quite prominently in many other places in Scripture. And so because of that, that helps drive my interpretation of an understanding, what like Pastor Guzik has here, that the he is the Antichrist figure and not Jesus Christ who's putting an end to sacrifice. That interpretation, if it does have merit, where Jesus brought the sacrifice to an end, number one is in the spiritual sense. Because even when Jesus died on the cross, the sacrifice is continued until the end of the until the destruction of the temple itself, which was a, a another almost thirty years, right? Forty years actually. So the times are all off. If it's Jesus in the middle of the week, he brings it into sacrifice and offering. Well, the sacrifice didn't end when Jesus died on the cross. They kept going. Paul brought sacrifices. The temple was still standing when Paul was writing, right? So the temple didn't get destroyed until 70. And if Jesus died in the 30s, well, then we have a big gap of time between him, Jesus, supposedly bringing the sacrifices to an end. I know Christians are going to tell me, but it was spiritually, not physically. It's not literally that he brought them to it and in. But if we cor correspond this with the other verses that talk about this midpoint of week, it's the physical sacrifices that seem to make the Jewish people upset. Plus the context. In this normative reading of the ending of the sacrifices, the Jewish people are very, very, very upset with this Antichrist figure for stopping their sacrificial system, right? <clears throat> based on the other verses as well. And even based on the antecedent incidents with the uh, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes who defiled the temple. The Jewish people were very upset with, with the defiling of the temple. And the other passages seem to indicate that the Jewish people would be very upset and shocked and be, begin being persecuted by this Antichrist figure at this midpoint. We'll find out more details next week, but I'm giving you this teaser right now. So in the context that I take it, the effect on Israel and the temple and the Jewish people is very negative when it comes to these events that we're reading about right now, the middle of the week, the end of the sacrifice and offering, because they want sacrifice, they want offering, they want their temple. But if this guy steps in and defiles it and messes everything up, they're going to be very upset. On the flip side, con contrastingly, if it's the Christian view that this is Jesus bringing the sacrifices to an end, but that's a positive for the Jewish people, they are very happy to sacrifice Jesus. Right? It didn't affect the temple and its physical animal sacrifices. They were very happy to put to get to death this guy who was going around saying that he was God, saying that he was Messiah, doing all these miracles, healing people, etc., etc. They were very, very happy. It had a positive effect on them when Jesus was, was crucified. They were very, very happy. They were very pleased with that. In that sense, they put to get this troublemaker. So notice the 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 the, the contrasting difference depending on your trend, your interpretation of who this is. We'll talk more about this next week, but suffice to say for now, Guzik is in agreement with my perspective as well, or I'm in agreement with Guzik's that this coming prince will break the covenant with Israel in the middle of the seven years, the final week, the period of seven years. That's Guzik's 
perspective. Let's keep reading. Roman numeral I, the book of Revelation sees this seven-year period with both its halves as yet future. We'll look at that in time. The middle of the week and the end of sacrifice had not yet happened in 90 AD. In fact, indeed, even though the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, Jewish authorities and Josephus as well attest that the temple that the sacrifices continued in secret in some shape or form for another 20 years, like I said, even up to 90 AD. So, point D by Guzik. On the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. The ending of sacrifice <clears throat> will come with abominations, followed by tremendous desolation. The word abominations, Guzik notes, translates an ancient Hebrew word, shikuts, that is connected to horrific idolatry. We have references to Deuteronomy and Kings. The idea is that the coming prince breaks the covenant and brings an end to sacrifice and offering by desecrating the holy place of the temple with a horrific idolatry. Again, if the coming Antichrist is the type for which Antiochus Epiphanes was the shadow, then, and we're, we're talking about Antichrist, not Christ, but Antichrist, then just like Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple in the few centuries before Yeshua came, remember, Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV was an Antichrist figure. He's a type of Antichrist. He's not a type of Christ. He's a type of Antichrist. He's an enemy of the Jewish people, not a friend of the Jewish people. And in his role as Antichrist, he desecrated the holy place and the temple, and he desolated the place with his polluted sacrifice that he offered up on the altar there. You can read about that in the book of Mac in the ancient books of Maccabees and in history. In like fashion, the coming Antichrist will desecrate the temple, just like Jesus prophesied in Matthew. He, this future Antichrist will desecrate the temple once again. Thus, he's an enemy. And notice how Jesus described the desecration of the temple as a bad thing, not a good thing. So, my, the point I'm bringing up is that if we say that this person who stops the sacrifices in the middle of the week is Jesus, and Jesus himself described the destruction of the temple and the desecration of the temple in the middle of the week, midweek as a negative thing, then what, Jesus is describing his own sacrifice on the cross in negative terms? It just doesn't fit. I, I don't follow that particular line of thinking, although again, I understand the spiritual revocations of Jesus cutting the covenant, the new covenant, ratifying it with his blood, with the many being those who would believe in him for salvation. There's a spiritual application that can be made there, but I just don't believe Daniel's making it in, the, in these particular prophecies. Roman numeral two, Jesus called this abomination of desolation in Matthew. He called this the abomination of desolation. We're going a little bit over just so I can finish this tonight, so just bear with me. And Jesus indicated that it would be a pivotal sign in the great tribulation. Paul referred to the idolatry of the coming prince in Second Thessalonians. And then Guzik uh concludes let me see we've got some more details these are just extra notes at the very end of guzik but the final note by guzik here point number e until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the on the desolate this breaking of the covenant and abomination desolation has a promised consummation before the 70th week is completed each of the things described in daniel 9:24 will be accomplished and everlasting righteousness will reign remember in verse number, let me scroll back up, in verse 24, Daniel was told, and we're closing with this, Daniel was told these six things will happen to you and your people on the holy city. And then he lists them. You can read them there on the screen. I don't have to read them for you. 
which means all of these things eventually will take place by the end of all of the 490 years. Conveniently, we could almost say that the first three of the six took place when Jesus came, and the final three must could take place when Jesus returns the second time at a second coming. We could break it down that way, and we'll look at that next week as we begin to turn to the 70th week in particular. But in conclusion, there's a time frame here. I'm not going to look at that tonight. We'll look at we'll we'll start with this next week where Guzik provides this little chart about the 70 weeks of Daniel is understood by Sir Robert Anderson in the coming prints. This is kind of supplemental material, kind of excursus type material. It's not very long, but I don't want to get into it now because it'll it'll deter me from it'll it'll distract me from the main context of what we were talking about already. We'll 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 start here next week. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ari Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's take the next 30 minutes and pick up where we left off. We've been talking about the verse in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 45, verse 6, which is quoted for us by the biblical Unitarian website, as thus, out of the NIV, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And they let us know that this verse is 
quoted, it's reproduced for us in Hebrews 1.8, and therefore they explain themselves in that section, on that verse. And so we turned to their explanation. We left off point number three, and we'll pick up their reading, their explanation. We never, we didn't finish theirs. We'll pick up their explanation, then we'll go into my refutation of their explanation. Remember, the Biblical Unitarian group, the denomination known as Biblical Unitarian, or Biblical Unitarianism, is a non-Trinitarian group that in a nutshell, believes that Jesus, I'm sorry, let me back up. They'll believe that God is the single person or being known as God. He's only one person. He's a unipersonal God. He's not tripersonal. There's only one of him. And he is not broken up in three persons. There's just one God who is the Father. But there is the human agent known as Jesus, the son who was born of Mary in the first century, and he has been raised from the dead by God and sits at the right hand of God, and therefore he is worthy of worship because God commands it so. But he's a human. The Holy Spirit is simply another divine title for God himself, so God the Father is the Holy Spirit in the viewpoint of biblical Unitarianism. Or the Holy Spirit is the power from God that is bestowed as a gift or anoint, anoint, anointing from God that can be given to human beings, but it's not a third person of the Trinity. So that's their perspective. Let's read their answer about Psalm 45, 6, which is reproduced in Hebrews 1, 8. We left off in point three. I'll read this and then we'll keep going. The king, the king's God anointed him, speaking about, speaking about this figure in the book of Psalms. The king's God anointed him, setting him above his peers. This is evidence against the Trinitarian interpretation of the verse for a number of reasons. One is that God does not have any peers to be set above, whereas the human king of Israel, including the Messiah, does have peers. They go on to say that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, did have peers because he was completely human and not a God-man, as Trinitarian theology asserts. Also, Psalm 45, 7 says this king loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and therefore God anointed him. This makes perfect sense if the king is human. But if this king is God, was he really anointed because he loved righteousness? Makes no sense that God needed to be anointed at all. Then they begin to talk about translation considerations. I'm going to try and read through their explanation nonstop, and then I'll go back and supply my own explanation, or my own answer or refutation, etc. Now let us address some reasons why Hebrews 1.8 should not be translated, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Although, quote, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, is a legitimate translation of Hebrews 1.8, there's evidence that, your throne is God forever and ever is actually a better translation. Listen up very carefully. You don't have to be a translator yourself or even have to know the Greek to, under, to catch the gist of what you're trying to say. Right? So, uh, I hope this doesn't sound too technical. The renowned Greek scholar and Trinitarian A.T. Robertson noted that the Greek word theos, which is God, could be understood as vocative, O oh God, or as a nominative, as in the phrase, God is thy throne, or thy throne is God. He wrote, either translation makes good sense. While it is true that from a strictly translational point of view, either evocative or nominative translation is acceptable, all translation is informed by context and scope, and the context strongly argues against the translation, your throne, O God. 
we're going to, as I interject, we're going to see later on that when we look at the Greek, if I get to it tonight, I believe I will, because we have to start with our structural analysis. We're going to see that the Greek actually literally has the vocative when it comes to the Greek analysis of the words that are used, according to Greek translators. Even Biblical Unitarian's website recognizes that the Greek manuscripts have been preserved for us in the vocative, both from the Septuagint rendering from the Hebrew, as well as in the Greek manuscripts from the book of Hebrews. The book of the translation from the book of Psalms into the Hebrew, Hebrew doesn't have a vocative per se, at least not in this verse. There are ways to indicate it, but it doesn't show up in this particular verse. So I'm just kind of inserting that right now for you. Point number one under Biblical Unitarian's web uh, explanation here. There's a very good reason for believing that the correct translation of Psalm 45.6 is God is your throne or some other translation, some are given below, that takes God as referring to the Most High God, not a human being, small g-o-d. If Psalm 45, verse 6 is translated, Your throne, O God, with a capital G for the word God, then Psalm 45, 6 would be the only verse in the whole Bible in which a human being is directly and personally addressed as God with a small G-O-D. That's their perspective. Give me a moment. I'm going to see if I can make this a little bigger. I like the size of this of my, what I'm seeing right now. Give me a moment. I'm changing what my screen looks like. Okay. That's the size I want to use. Okay. So, Biblical Unitarianism, Biblical Unitarian says that if we translate it as your throne, O God, then, like the book of Hebrews does, then this would be the only place that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where a human author is referred to as God. That's what they say, which they think is a problem. All right, so let's pick up our reading here. They say, there are times when humans are referred to as gods with a small g, like in the book of John, or as a small g-o-d to someone else, like Moses over Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, meaning that they act as a small g-o-d over that person. They rule over them, but nowhere else in the Bible is a human being personally addressed, uh, addressed as a g-o-d. Added to that, they say, evidence, added to that evidence is the fact that Elohim, with a capital E, occurs four times in the psalm itself, right? At 45, verse 2, 6, and then 45, 7, twice. So that's four times. And three of them clearly refer to God with a capital G. So it fits the psalm that the fourth would also refer to God the Father, and not, according to their perspective, God the Son, like the writer to the book of Hebrews says it does. They continue, point number two. Robert Alter gives another argument why the vocative, O oh God, is likely not the correct translation. When we say vocative, V-O-C-A-T-I-V-E, we're referring to a form of a word, a, a grammatical explanation that explains a word that where you're directly addressing someone. O oh God, a vocative uh, is, is similar to a vocal, even the word spellings are the same, vocative, or similar vocative vocal. The word vocative refers to, I'll, I'll show you this here in a moment, but it refers to uh, directly addressing an individual. Oh God, that's that the vocative form of a word. Robert Alter says it's likely not the correct translation. He goes on to say, in the Hebrew Bible, a, uh, a translation with commentary writes, this is Alter, 
Some construe the Hebrew here to mean your throne, O God, end quote, but it would be anomalous to have an address to God in the middle of the poem because the entire psalm is directed to the king or to his bride, end quote. Biblical Unitarianism. Biblical Unitarian continues in point number three. Another argument for the translation, your throne is God forever and ever, as opposed to your throne, O God. Notice if they say your throne is God forever and ever, then it takes away from the writer of the book of Hebrews calling Jesus God. Instead, it says to this Messiah king or to this ruler, this anointed person, your throne is God. And you're probably thinking, what? A throne is a chair. How is a throne God? How is God a throne? Right? We'll talk about that after I read their explanation. But they go on to say that if it's your throne is God forever and ever, that this particular translation matches the parallelism in the Greek between Hebrews 1.8a and 1.8b. And they explain. In Hebrews 1.8b, we have two nominative nouns and in English we in English we add an is in between. This looks like this. Okay, here's what they have. The scepter, nominative noun, of uprightness is the scepter, nominative noun, of your kingdom. That's the poetic part. It's very common in both Greek and Hebrew to add a to be verb to make a sentence understandable in English. And almost every, I'm sorry, and almost every modern translation, they say, translates Hebrews 1.8b this way. Enter right the way we just read it. The scepter of righteousness, the scepter of your, the scepter. How do they say it? The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's how most translations put it. Even biblical Unitarian translates it that way. They have their own translation, which we'll see here in a moment. Here's what they continue. Interestingly, the first half of the verse has the same construction in the Greek. A nominative noun and then another nominative noun with no verb. Thus, according to their interpretation, biblical Unitarian, it is fitting to supply an is in between these two nouns, just as most translations do in the second half of the verse. So what they do is they put Hebrews 1a to read this way. Your throne, nominative noun, is God, nominative noun. And 1.8b reads, the scepter, nominative noun, of uprightness is the scepter, nominative noun, of your kingdom. And so I agree with their assessment of the poetry, with meaning if we were to translate along these poetic lines, and if we were to highlight the poetic aspect of the verse of the parts, clauses 1.8a uh, and 1.8b, then it would, it would be fitting to poetically line it up that way according to the greek and so they go on to say so in other words one would have to find a good reason to translate the two nominative nouns differently in the first half of the verse than in the second half even though it would be most natural to understand them in the same way because they are in a very similar construction in the greek let me pause and interject and say if I didn't disagree with their overall rejection of Jesus as God, I would say this is a very sound way of interpreting the verse when it comes to the poetic aspect of it. We don't have to translate it that way, <clears throat> but uh, poetically speaking, that's this very attractive to translate it that way. We're going to find out later on, however, that the Greek, because of that vocative right there in the middle of 1.8a, that it kind of throws a little bit of a monkey wrench into their explanation here. But otherwise, it's very, very nice to see it poetically lined up that way, if, if that's indeed what the writer to the book of Hebrews wanted us to understand. 
Okay, they continue. The meaning of the two phrases is that God is the king's throne or his source of authority, metaphorically. So that's what they mean by your throne is God. Your throne is God or God is your throne. It's a metaphoric statement. It doesn't mean literally that the Messiah is sitting on God's lap as if God is his seat or something like that. It's metaphorically his source of authority, not literal. And the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom, metaphor, more metaphorically, not literally as well. So they're drawing some points that are actually valid to a degree. In other words, this king that's described by the book of Psalms and the writer to the book of Hebrews, this king rules with righteousness instead of a physical scepter. So when the we go back and look at the verse itself in the book of Psalms, as well as the book of Hebrews, let's bring up the verse for a moment. And verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The passage if it's talking about a literal earthly king, which the writer of the book of Psalms had every reason to be referring to a literal king at first, we understand, however, that the type that it's pointing to was Jesus, this would being the shadow, the earthly king being the shadow, Jesus being the type, like the writer of the book of Hebrews reveals to us. However, the earthly king, he probably had a physical scepter that he, that was part of his kingly uh, accompany uh, what we say pieces that he that he had access to along with his throne that he wore on his head and the I'm sorry his crown that he wore on his head and the throne that he sat on there was a scepter that he often held in his right hand so that that seems to be fine that he had a physical scepter but is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God with a physical scepter in his hand we're not sure that's kind of what the biblical unitarian group is bringing to our attention it doesn't have to be a physical scepter they continue the main argument against the translation your throne is god is that the phrase does not make sense to some people true when we say your throne is god right if we're talking about jesus how is god jesus throne right i mean most in fact there's a there's a commentary that we'll read in time i don't know if i'll get to it tonight but there's a commentary that says that says if the translation is your throne is god or god is your throne that it really makes nonsense of the verse because it means that jesus is somehow sitting on god i mean god is the literal throne of jesus that's why most people are like what why why would why would you interpret that way even the ancient jewish translations don't translate it as your throne is god there's only really two two or three mainstream non-jewish translations that Put it this way, your throne is God or God is your throne. One of them is the translation that is created by biblical Unitarianism themselves. We'll see that here in a moment. And the other is the Jehovah's Witness, <laughs> Jehovah's Witness version. Their version translates, I believe, translate this this way. We'll see here in a moment. But let's continue reading theirs. So the main argument against this translation, your throne is God, is that the phrase does not make sense to some people. In other words, it's really the main pushback when you hear a biblical Unitarian say, it's translated as your throne is God. Your the, the, the typical knee-jerk reaction from a non-Trinitarian, I'm sorry, a non-Unitarian is, your throne is God? What are you trying to say? All right, so they, they, they explain. But we must understand that the verse is not using throne as a seat, a chair, but as it is often used in the Bible as a source of authority, I, I, I like their, I like their backpedaling here. So it seems to fit, make sense there, even though I again I disagree with their 
their conclusionary perspective, I have to agree with the way they're trying to explain themselves and fit logic into their explanation that they're, they're doing a pretty good job of it. They go on to say, in fact, if throne is understood to be a chair, then the verse does not make sense. And here's what they have to say. Here's how they render it. The throne is the source of authority, right? It doesn't make sense. In essence, the verse is saying, quote, your source of authority is God. That's really what they're trying to say when they say your throne is God. Your source of authority is God or God is your throne. Uh, God is your source of authority. Speaking of this king. They can, which I agree with, by the way. That's why I have to keep pausing and interjecting. Whether we're talking about an earthly king such as David or Solomon or whoever else the psalmist might have been referring to, or we're referring to Jesus, whom the writer to the book of Hebrews calls God, I do believe, capital G-O-D. I, I, I go with that as a Trinitarian. I believe that that's what the translation is saying. If that's the case, either way, whether we're talking about an earthly king as the shadow or Jesus as a type, it is God the Father who is the source of authority when we're talking about either the earthly king or Jesus himself, right? Jesus, over and over again, deferred authority back to the Father and said, I, you know, I only do what the Father commands me to do. He is the authority that I'm acting on. It's his name that I'm upholding. It's his kingdom that I'm building. It's his authority that I'm standing on. I'm not standing on my own authority. I'm standing on the Father's authority. And as a human being, he over and over repeatedly let people know that the Father is the final authority. However, since Jesus is equal with God, then when it comes to his identity as God, we don't have to see any type of hierarchy in that regards. Ontologically, he's not lower than God the Father. God the Father and God the Son are identical because there's only one God. But when we talk about, again, this is this is when we start dealing with the economy of God, of the persons, one, two, and three, and the roles that they play and functions that they demonstrate in, in, in respect to one another, then there definitely is hierarchy there. So, God is the source of authority, whether we're talking about an earthly king, like biblical Unitarianism, holds to, or biblical Unitarian, or we're talking about the Messiah King, like we Trinitarians believe, we both kind of agree that God is the ultimate and final source of authority. For example, they say, when David chose Solomon to be king, one of David's top men, uh, Benaiah said to David, quote, may he, Yahweh, be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David, end quote. That's from the book of 1 Kings. In speaking of Solomon's throne, they note, being greater than David's, Benaiah was saying that Solomon would have more authority and dominion than David did, which came to pass, right? David died, Solomon took, took the spot, therefore Solomon had took his own father's throne. He inherited it. The use of throne referring to the authority that the throne represents also occurs in the New Testament. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, he told her that she would give birth to the Messiah, and he said, quote, The Lord God will give him, speaking of Jesus, the throne of his father David, in the book of Luke chapter 1. Biblical Unitarian reminds us that in saying that Mary's son would have the throne of David, he meant the authority that the throne represented. That authority went all to all the way back 
to God's promise to David that his throne would endure forever, which is why Gabriel then said, quote, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end, end quote. Again, Luke 1.33. So in closing, Biblical Unitarian reminds us, your throne is God forever, or we could swap that around, God is your throne forever, right? Either one works grammatically. Remember, the syntax in Greek can go back and forth. But their rendering of your throne is God forever, in, the, in closing, what they say is that this means that God is the authority, the throne of the king, and the king reigns with the authority of God. This king, and by extension the Messiah, the true king of Israel, has been specifically anointed by God. That's Psalm 45.7 and their explanation of Hebrews 1 verse 8. Okay, before we begin to explain this passage from a Trinitarian perspective before we begin to refute, which I've only got about 10 minutes left to do, so I can easily see that this is going to go in next week. Let's begin to do what I call the structural analysis. So let me tell you where I'm going to go. I'm going to jump through a number of different translations first. You can see I'm kind of flashing them on the screen. And then I'm also going to be looking at some of the analysis of the Hebrew and the Greek. Without getting too terribly technical, I want to show you how some of the renderings can supply different translations based on interpretations, based on your interpretive understanding of certain ordering of Greek words and things like that. There aren't a lot of what we might interpret as, oh, what would we say, variants in this in either one of these verses. So we, there, there are some slight wording differences between the majority texts and the other family, like the A and the B families that, I, that I'm fond of talking about, but there aren't enough to make a huge difference. But what we are going to do is I'm kind of flashing through these very quickly on the screen just to show you where I'm going to go, is what we are going to see is that different groups translate these verses differently based on their own interpretive bias and in whether or not they accept that Jesus is the candidate or not. So, like my good friend who's in the live class right now reminded me just before the class, the Word of God is truth, and God's Word is given to us as truth, and it stands on its own, even if it's only one verse, because of God being absolutely true in everything that He says and does, He doesn't have to repeat Himself in order for it to be truth, right? In order for it to be true and to be truth. He can say something once, and it's true. It's absolutely true from God's perspective because God himself is absolute truth, even if he doesn't repeat himself anywhere else in the Bible. However, the problem arises when interpretation comes into play, when man, who is fallible, comes into the picture and brings his interpretation of what God says. And so, even if we only had this one verse to work from, which we're only looking at this one verse tonight, even if this were the only place where a human king is called God with a capital G which we believe is Jesus, then from God's perspective, if we didn't have the imperfect translation that we do and interpretation that we possess as humans, then God's truth would stand on its own. And we just have to confess that, well, yeah, Jesus is capital G-O-D because God said it, even if there's only one place in the Old Testament that reveals it. So, I thought that's kind of interesting. But looking at these translations, we're going to find that interpretation and translation gets in the way of what God 
handed down to us. And God's not been undone. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we tripped up God and that we somehow defeated God by inserting our own bias and translation and interpretations. That's not what's going on at all. God's word will be proven to be true whether we realize it or not. In the end, God will reveal himself to be true. In the end, one day, sooner or later, and this is my hope and this is my faith that I that I my, that I hold to with a firm belief that Jesus truly is capital G O D and that one day the biblical unitarianism crowd will be proven wrong and it's not that it's to their destruction so that they can be sent off into hell or something like that. that's not where I'm going with that I don't believe that it's a salvific type of belief but it's a shame that they teach this perspective because it does so much damage to understanding God, his character, his nature, and his dealings with mankind. If we take a low Christology view, a perspective that Jesus is simply a human, we strip him of his deity, etc., etc. I believe that one day God will, God's word will be proven true. It's because God upholds his word. God establishes his word. God keeps his word. And God will confirm his word. So we, for now, yeah, we've got imperfect translations. We've got imperfect interpretations we've got man's opinions here and there we've got all kinds of nonsense that that clouds the issue and obfuscates the truth but god's truth will shine one day and so let's let's just agree that that's what we're working towards but we're going to eventually see that there's all these different translational perspectives we're also going to take a look at some more of the Greek translations possi possibilities that we talked about earlier. We talked about vocative and nominative and things like that. Do a little bit of grammar refresher for us. We will have to define what is what is meant by the word predicate and predicate nouns. I got some examples. And then lastly, we won't get to this tonight. I'm just showing you in advance where we're going. Lastly, we'll read a few different Trinitarian-leaning commentaries since we read a unitarian commentary at the very beginning then we will eventually read a trinitarian commentary by i guess i've got three different versions maybe four i've got this one by carm i've got this one by truth and tidings it's a blog i believe i've got this one by tim Haig, and then lastly i've got this one by Dr. James Anderson and things like that. And that'll uh, close out this particular study on this particular verse. But let's go back now and begin to peel back some of the translations. Let's look at, we, we, we have to go through this. It's a bit tedious for some of us, but it's called structural analysis. We have to look at the different translations and the Greek underlying behind the translations what drives in translations why people translate the way they do we have to look at that first before i it, it would do no good if i just told you well biblical unitarianism is wrong and biblical trinitarianism is right so just believe what i have to say okay that's it end of the matter i'll say no more on the matter end of discussion well, that doesn't work that doesn't refute anything if i just say well what he said is wrong and what i say is right so just believe me that's no kind of debate Right? That doesn't work. I have to build my case and substantiate it from the biblical text and show you how I believe by context and how, how I believe by, uh, by inference and how I believe by uh, explanation and by Greek analysis and by Hebrew analysis and how you know this and that. I have to build my case like a good lawyer in court and show you why I believe the biblical Unitarian perspective, which says that 
this Jesus that the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about is just a human. He's not capital G-O-D. Why I, why they, why I believe their perspective is wrong. Okay, so that's what I have to go through. All right, let's begin to do that, though. Hebrews 1.8. Remember, we're talking about the book of Psalm, and we're looking at it through the lens of the writer of the book of Hebrews. What I want to show you first and foremost is that the Biblical Unitarian website has their own version of the Bible, which there's nothing illegal, there's nothing immoral, there's nothing unethical about creating your own version of the Bible, right? David Stern did it, he created his own version, and he's a Trinitarian Messianic Jew. But it's a little unsettling when a denomination, in an effort to set themselves over and against in stark contrast to a mainstream denomination when they decide to make their own translation, right? We know this happened with the Jehovah's Witnesses. We know this happened with the uh, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and things like that. They end up creating their own versions of the Bible to suit their theology, which in and of itself creates more problems. It doesn't solve the issues. It just ends up creating another version that's full of errors based on translational biases that don't line up with mainstream and uh, orthodox Christianity, things like that. And yet they still call themselves Christian. The biblical Unitarian group, I'm not sure what their motivation was for creating this version, but it's called the Revised English Version or the REV, the Rev. REV, the Revised English Version, which is available online at www.revisedenglishversion.com, all spelled out, Revised English Version, as you can see on my screen there. So here's how they say, you can, you can see they've got your throne is God, and this, this commentary that, you're, that I'm flashing in front of your face, I'm not going to go through and read it. It reads almost verbatim to what we read earlier in the Biblical Unitarian biblicalunitarian.com website, and for good reasons, because they're both authored by the same denominational group. So I'm not going to read through it. I just want you to be aware of it, that the revisedenglishversion.com has a commentary on the book of Hebrews, and it's available here. We're going to see later on that I've got their version pulled up right here, revisedenglishversion.com. This is the translation of the passage itself from their perspective. But let's just jump to the other translations first. Let's start with the mainstream English translations, starting with the book of Psalms. We're only really looking at verse, sorry, didn't mean to un shrink that. We're really only looking at verse six, although verse seven is also part of the discussion. We're not really bringing verse seven in at the moment, unless there are some details I need to pull in. But primarily, this is a study on Psalm 45 6 as is repeated and quoted by hebrews 1 8 that's what this is a study on so let's read the passage this verse this posse in english this is nasb your throne O god is forever and ever a scepter of, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom this is nasb notice your throne comma O god comma is forever and ever. That first clause, your throne, O God, that is vocative. That's where we're directly addressing a person. We say vocative. A good example would be, remember when Jesus healed Lazarus and he calls out to Lazarus from the grave, Lazarus, come forth, right? The the use of the phrase Lazarus, comma, come forth. If you look that up in a Greek Bible, in a, in a, in a concordance or a lexicon, it'll show you that that word Lazarus 
is in the vocative form. The noun is a vocative case that indicates the vocal calling of or addressing to someone. So when you address someone, hey, Ariel, go wash the dishes. Go wash your dishes. If my wife says, hey, Ariel, go wash your dishes in that statement, Ariel is in the vocative case of, of, of English if we had cases. So that's what's going on. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. It doesn't matter if we put the word O oh God up front or if we put the God, oh God in the middle. O oh God, your throne is forever and ever. Or your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. Or your throne is forever and ever, O oh God. It doesn't matter where in the order, word order, the syntax, the form is still vocative. By um, interest, in the Hebrew, we don't have the vocative form of the noun here. The Hebrew says, Kisacha Elohim Olam Ve'ed. And then it can, and that's the first clause where it says, your, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then it continues, it says, Shevet Mishor Shevet Malchutecha. And that's the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom or something that effect the hebrew has a way of indicating vocative but it doesn't show up in this particular verse i have to say that in a with a little bit of exception because technically there isn't the vocative in the hebrew if you ask a hebrew expert which i'm no hebrew expert but i'm not a i'm not a newbie i'm not a novice either i'm somewhere in the middle i have just enough hebrew to be dangerous so what I'm trying to indicate is that Hebrew technically doesn't have a vocative, but there are cases, sometimes I'll show you these verses a little later, but not now, where we can indicate vocative, where we're saying, oh Lord, where we're kind of imploring God, but it, it's not, it doesn't show up in this verse. And so um, some people say, no, technically Hebrew doesn't have a vocative, but there's a way to indicate, to mimic a vocative, I should say it that way. So, but, but in the English, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. All right, so that's one translation. If we look at this verse in different other translations, we won't get much further than this tonight, I'm, I imagine. Starting with the NIV, all I want you to do is simply notice all the times where it says your throne, O God. And then notice the times where it isn't your throne, O God. So I'm going to go through these somewhat quickly. So we got NIV is O God, NLT, O God, ESV, O God, Berean Standard, O God, KJV, O God, New King KJV, O God, New American Standard, your throne God is forever. It doesn't say O God, but the, the placement of the commas is still vocative form. NESB 95, your throne, O God. And then let's keep, uh, sorry about that, let's keep going. Uh, NESB 1977, O God, Legacy Standard, O God, Amplified, O God, Christian Standard, God, your throne God is forever and ever. Christian Standard, notice here, it is vocative, your throne God, your throne, comma, God, comma, that's what we mean by vocative. Holman Christian Standard, your throne, comma, God. American Standard, your thy throne, O God. Amer uh, Aramaic Plain Bible, your throne, O God, the word O as in written O-H instead of just the letter O. Brenton Septuagint, thy throne, O God. Remember, Brenton, Sir Lancelot Brenton, is the one of the chief translators of the Septuagint from the uh, who's, uh, Theodosians, 
I believe it's Theodosian's tr- uh, translation into Greek, and then Brenton translated it into English. Two prominent names there. I believe I got that right. Contemporary English, you are God and you will rule forever as king. Okay, just takes out the evocative. Translates it differently. Dewey Rames, thy throne, O God, vocative. English revised version. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. God's Word translation, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Good news translation, the, the kingdom that God has given you will last forever and ever. This good news translation is similar to the Jewish translation that we're going to see here in a moment. The kingdom that God has given you. International standard, your throne, God, exists forever and ever. JPS Tanakh, thy throne given of God is forever and ever. Notice I said that this was similar to that other Christian translation. The point in, I'm trying to bring up and showing you all these different English translations is that not every Christian translation translates this as thy throne, O God, or your throne, O God. They don't all translate it as vocative, even though the Greek analysis that we're going to see here in a moment from the Septuagint, as well as the book of Hebrews, they both have the vocative in there. So it's normal, normative. It's quite normal to translate it, translate it using the vocative. And we'll see, why is the vocative important? Why do we care? What does the vocative imply? Just in case you got lost, the vocative implies that the writer is referring to the recipient of this kingdom, this ruler, as God. That's why we say the vocative. And so, if the writer to the book of Hebrews said that this psalm is addressing Jesus, and since the psalm was written by the Holy Spirit, and in the context of the psalm, the person that is seated in that kingly position is God, and yet the writer to the book of Hebrews expressly and explicitly says that this is Jesus, well then, when we close the loop of our syllogism, when we form our conclusion based on the premises that I just constructed, then the writer to the book of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is God. That's the point. That's why we're highlighting the vocative. In the contrast, the Biblical Unitarian group says this is not evocative, and therefore the writer to the book of Psalms and the writer to the book of Hebrews is not addressing Jesus as God. He's simply addressing this, this righteous king with a title and an aspect of his kingdom that indicates that God is his God is the throne of this righteous ruler. That's why they strip away the vocative. And that's why I'm showing it to you in all these different translations. Literal standard version, your throne, O God. Majority standard Bible, your throne, O God. New American Bible, your throne, O God. Net Bible, your throne, O God. New Revised Standard Version, your throne, O God. New Heart English Bible, your throne, God. Webster's Bible Translation, thy throne, O God. World English Bible, your throne, God. Young's literal translation, thy throne, O God. So, why all the fuss? Again, we're looking at these translations. Sorry about that. We're looking at these translations to try to ascertain which one is really the better of the translations. And so, it's not enough just to say, well, from an argument point of view, well, my translation says thus, and just because your translation says something different, well, I know mine's right because my translation is the majority, or mine's right because it's the one the Christians read, or mine's right because my church says it's right. That's a very weak way of arguing your way through the discussion. It's a very weak argument to begin with. You don't want to really go in that direction. It's You have to do a little bit of homework, and I hope that's what we're doing in this particular discussion. We're not going to get very far because we're running out of room, running out of time, 
I just want to begin to alert you to the fact that we're going to begin to look at some more of the Hebrew and some more of the Greek. Um, but I think I'll stop right there. Next week, we'll pick up our discussion again. We'll begin to finish out our structural analysis and looking at different passages. We have to begin to look at some different versions from a non-Trinitarian perspective. We'll start looking at the book of Hebrews as well. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close our study in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I am grateful that you've given me this opportunity to share my thoughts with the students. And I know I don't have all the answers. I know I'm not a perfect teacher, but I know that your word represents total truth and it's the final authority in all matters. And therefore, I'll continue to avail myself of your precious Holy Spirit so that I can come to a better understanding of what is truth. I understand that I'm going to have gaps in my understanding and I'm going to have flaws in my interpretations. Nevertheless, that's why you have commanded us and invited us to continue to study and to press in so that we can uh, clear away the fog and so that we can have better understanding of what truth is and what it means. Lord, we look forward to the day when you will return one day bodily so that we can have the most perfect understanding of what your word is and there will be no more interpretive bias. We can simply ask the Messiah, what does this verse mean? And you being the author of scripture, you'll be able to tell us exactly what these verses mean. But until that time comes, we trust the Holy Spirit himself, who is also very God, who gives us an understanding of much of the text, so much so that we can come to what we might say convictional understanding of certain passages and know that that's exactly what God is revealing to us. So thank you for those places where we have no question. Thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell with us. We're counting down the Omer towards Pentecost with a view towards the outpouring of that precious Holy Spirit and enjoying his presence once again uh even as he is now with us we are looking forward to joining you during that special occasion on pentecost as we celebrate not just the outpouring of the holy spirit but the gift of torah itself at mount sinai bless you lord for all these wonderful gifts that you give to your people continue to raise us up protect us strengthen us and give us a voice in this very dark and confusing world and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory Bashim Yeshua, Omein.